Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 2, Episode 11. Bonus. Excerpts from Ancient Chinese Philosophy. In the following excerpt, the term the master refers to Kong Futsu, and the many other names are some of his various disciples. Let's commence with Book 1 of the Analects. The master said, To learn and then do, is not that a pleasure? When friends come from afar, do we not rejoice? To live unknown and not fret, is not that to be a gentleman? Yutsu said, Few men that are good sons and good brothers are fond of withstanding those over them. A man that is not fond of withstanding those over him and yet is fond of broils is nowhere found. A gentleman heeds the roots. When the root has taken, the way is born. And to be a good son and a good brother is not that the root of love. The master said, Smooth words and fawning looks are seldom found with love. Tsengzi said, Thrice daily I ask myself, In dealing for others, have I been unfaithful? Have I been untrue to friends? Do I practice what I preach? The master said, To guide a land of a thousand chariots, Honor business and be true, Spend little and love men, Time thy calls on the people. The master said, The young should be dutiful at home, modest abroad, careful and true, overflowing in kindness for all, but in brotherhood with love. And if they have strength to spare, they should spend it on the arts. Susia said, If a man eschews beauty and honors worth, if he serves his father and mother with all his strength, if he is ready to give his life for his Lord and keeps faith with his friends, although others may say he has no learning, I must call him learned. The master said, A gentleman will not be looked up to unless he is stayed, nor will his learning be sound. Put faithfulness and truth first, have no friends unlike thyself. Be not ashamed to mend thy faults. Tsengzi said, Heed the deed, follow up the past, and the soul of the people will again grow great. Tsuchin said to Tsukung, When he comes to a country, the master always hears how it is governed. Does he ask, or is it told him? Tsukung said, The master gets it by his warmth and honesty, by politeness, modesty, and yielding. The way the master asks is unlike other men's asking. The master said, While your father lives, look for his purpose. When he is gone, look how he walked. To change nothing in your father's ways for three years may be called pious, Yutsu said, To behave with ease is the best part of courtesy. This was the beauty of the old king's ways. This they followed in small and great. 
but knowing this, it will not do to give way to ease, unchecked by courtesy. This too is wrong. Yutze said, If pledges are close to right, word can be kept. If attentions are close to courtesy, shame will be kept afar. If we do not choose our leaders wrong, we may worship them too. The master said, A gentleman that does not seek to eat his fill, nor look for ease in his home, who is earnest at work and careful in speech, who walks with those that keep the way and is guided by them, may be said to love learning. Tsukung said, Poor, but no flatterer. Rich, but not proud. How would that be? It would do, said the master, but better still were poor, but merry, rich, but loving courtesy. Tsukung said, When the poem says, If you cut, if you file, if you polish and grind, is that what is meant? The master said, Now I can begin to talk of poetry to Tsu. Tell him what is gone, and he knows what shall come. The master said, Not to be known is no sorrow. My sorrow is not knowing men. The following excerpt contains the first eight poems from the Tao Te Ching. The Tao that can be described is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be spoken is not the eternal name. The nameless is the boundary of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of creation. Freed from desire, you can see the hidden mystery. By having desire, you can only see what is visibly real. Yet, mystery and reality emerge from the same source. This source is called darkness. Darkness born from darkness, the beginning of all understanding. When people see things as beautiful, ugliness is created. When people see things as good, evil is created. Being and non-being produce each other. Difficult and easy complement each other. Long and short define each other. High and low oppose each other. Fore and aft follow each other. Therefore, the master can act without doing anything and teach without saying a word. Things come her way and she does not stop them. Things leave, and she lets them go. She has without possessing, and acts without any expectations. When her work is done, she takes no credit. That is why it will last forever. If you overly esteem talented individuals, people will become overly competitive. If you overvalue possessions, people will begin to steal. Do not display your treasures, or people will become envious. The master leads by emptying people's minds, filling their bellies, weakening their ambitions, and making them strong. Preferring simplicity and freedom from desires, avoiding the pitfalls of knowledge and wrong action. For those who practice Wu Wei, 
everything will fall into place. The Tao is like an empty container. It can never be emptied, and it can never be filled. Infinitely deep, it is the source of all things. It dulls the sharp, unties the knotted, shades the lighted, and unites all of creation with dust. It is hidden, but always present. I don't know who gave birth to it. It is older than the concept of God. Heaven and earth are impartial. They treat all of creation as straw dogs. The master doesn't take sides. She treats everyone like a straw dog. The space between heaven and earth is like a bellows. It is empty, yet has not lost its power. The more it is used, the more it produces. The more you talk of it, the less you comprehend. It is better not to speak of things you do not understand. The spirit of emptiness is immortal. It is called the Great Mother because it gives birth to heaven and earth. It is like a vapor, barely seen, but always present. Use it effortlessly. The Tao of heaven is eternal, and the earth is long-enduring. Why are they long-enduring? They do not live for themselves. Thus they are present for all beings. The master puts herself last and finds herself in the place of authority. She detaches herself from all things. Therefore she is united with all things. She gives no thought to self. She is perfectly fulfilled. The supreme good is like water which benefits all of creation. Without trying to compete with it, it gathers in unpopular places. Thus, it is like the Tao. The location makes the dwelling good. Depth of understanding makes the mind good. A kind heart makes the giving good. Integrity makes the government good. Accomplishment makes your labors good. Proper timing makes a decision good. Only when there is no competition will we all live in peace. The following excerpt is the fifth chapter of the Han Feitze, a prominent legalist text. Tao is the beginning of the myriad things, the standard of right and wrong. That being so, the intelligent ruler, by holding to the beginning, knows the source of everything, and by keeping to the standard, knows the origin of good and evil. Therefore, by virtue of resting empty and reposed, he waits for the course of nature to enforce itself, so that all names will be defined of themselves, and all affairs will be settled of themselves. Empty, he knows the essence of fullness. Reposed, he becomes the corrector of motion. Who utters a word creates himself a name. Who has an affair creates himself a form. Compare forms and names and see if they are identical. Then the ruler will find nothing to worry about as everything is reduced to its reality. Hence the saying, the ruler must not reveal his wants. For if he reveals his wants... 
the ministers will polish their manners accordingly. The ruler must not reveal his views, for if he reveals his views, the ministers will display their hues differently. Hence another saying, If the like and hate of the ruler be concealed, the true hearts of the ministers will be revealed. If the experience and wisdom of the ruler be discarded, the ministers will take precautions. Accordingly, the ruler, wise as he is, should not bother, but let everything find its proper place. Worthy as he is, he should not be self-assumed, but observe closely the minister's motivating factors of conduct. And, courageous as he is, should not be enraged, but let every minister display his prowess. So, leave the ruler's wisdom, then you will find the minister's intelligence. Leave the ruler's worthiness, then you will find the minister's merits. And leave the ruler's courage, then you will find the minister's strength. In such cases, ministers will attend to their duties, magistrates will have definite work routine, and everybody will be employed according to his special ability. Such a discourse of government is called constant and immutable. Hence the saying, So quiet it rests without footing, so vacant it cannot be located. Thus, the intelligent ruler does nothing but his ministers tremble all the more. It is the Tao of the intelligent ruler that he makes the wise men exhaust their mental energy and makes his decisions thereby without being himself at his wit's end. That he makes the worthy men exert their talents and appoints them to office accordingly without being himself at the end of his ability and that in case of merits, the ruler gains the renown, and in case of demerit, the ministers face the blame, so that the ruler is never at the end of his reputation. Therefore, the ruler, even though not worthy, becomes the master of the worthies, and, even though not wise, becomes the corrector of the wise men. It is the ministers who do the toil, it is the ruler who gets the spoil. This is the everlasting principle of the worthy sovereign. Tao exists in invisibility, its function in unintelligibility. Be empty and reposed, and have nothing to do. Then, from the dark, see defects in the light. See, but never be seen. Hear, but never be heard. No, but never be known. If you hear any word uttered, do not change it nor move it, but compare it with the deed and see if word and deed coincide with each other. Place every official with a censor. Do not let them speak to each other. Then everything will be exerted to the utmost. Cover tracks and conceal sources then the ministers cannot trace origins. Leave your wisdom and cease your ability. Then your subordinates cannot guess at your limitations. Keep your decision and identify it with the words and deeds of your subordinates. Cautiously take the handles and hold them fast. 
uproot others' want of them, smash others' thought of them, and do not let anybody covet them. If the ruler is not cautious of the locking, or if he does not keep the gate in good repair, the tiger will come into existence. If the ruler does not take precautions for his sway, or if he does not cover his realities, the traitor will make his appearance. Who murders the sovereign and takes his place and finds the whole people's side in awe with him is called a tiger. Again, who serves the country by the sovereign's side and watches for his secret faults with villainous motives is called a traitor. Scatter his partisans, arrest his supporters, lock up the gate, and deprive him of all assistance. Then there will be no tiger in the country. Be too great to be measured. Be too profound to be surveyed. Identify norms and names. Scrutinize laws and manners, and chastise those doing as they please. Then there will be no traitor in the country. For these reasons, the Lord of men always has to face five kinds of delusion. Delusion by ministers impeding the sovereign. Delusion by ministers controlling public resources and revenues. Delusion by ministers issuing decrees at random. Delusion by ministers distributing personal favors. And delusion by ministers feeding dependents. When ministers impede the sovereign, the sovereign loses his viewpoint. When they control public resources and revenues, he loses his advantages. When they issue decrees at random, he loses his ruling authority. When they distribute personal favors, he loses his name. When they feed their dependents, he loses his supporters. All their doings as such should be based on the initiative of the Lord of men and should not be started by the ministers at their pleasure. The Tao of the Lord of men regards tranquility and humility as treasures. Without handling anything himself, he can tell skillfulness from unskillfulness. Without his own concerns of mind, he can tell good from bad luck. Therefore, Without uttering any word himself, he finds a good reply given. Without exerting his own effort, he finds his task accomplished. Whenever a reply is given to his question, he holds to its covenant. Whenever any task is accomplished, he holds to its result. And out of coincidence and discrepancy between the consequences of tasks accomplished and the covenants of words uttered, reward and punishment are born. Therefore, when a minister utters a word, the ruler should, according to the word, assign him a task to accomplish, and according to the result of the accomplishment, call the task to account. If the result corresponds with the task, and the task with the word, the minister should be rewarded. If the result corresponds not with the task, and the task not with the word, he should be censured. It is in accordance with the Tao of the intelligent ruler that every minister should utter no word that corresponds not with its proper task. For this reason, the intelligent ruler, in bestowing rewards, is as benign as the seasonable rain that the masses profit by his graces, 
in inflicting punishments, he is so terrific like the loud thunder that even divines and sages cannot atone for their crimes. Thus the intelligent ruler neglects no reward and remits no punishment. For if reward is neglected, ministers of merit will relax their duties. If punishment is remitted, villainous ministers will become liable to misconduct. Therefore, men of real merit, however distant and humble, must be rewarded. Those of real demerit, however near and dear, must be censured. If both the reward of the distant and humble and the censure of the near and dear are infallible, the distant and humble will not go idle while the near and dear will not turn arrogant. The following excerpt is from the first chapter of The Art of War. Laying Plans Sun Tzu said, The art of war is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence, it is a subject of inquiry which can on no account be neglected. The art of war, then, is governed by five constant factors to be taken into account in one's deliberation when seeking to determine the conditions for obtaining in the field. These are the moral law, heaven, earth, the commander, method and discipline. The moral law causes the people to be in complete accord with their ruler, so that they will follow him regardless of their lives, undismayed by any danger. Heaven signifies night and day, cold and heat, times and seasons. Earth comprises distances, great and small, danger and security, open ground and narrow passes, the chances of life and death. The commander stands for the virtues of wisdom, sincerity, benevolence, courage, and strictness. By method and discipline are to be understood the marshalling of the army in its proper subdivisions, the gradations of rank among the officers, the maintenance of roads by which supplies may reach the army, and the control of military expenditure. These five heads should be familiar to every general. He who knows them will be victorious. He who knows them not will fail. Therefore, in your deliberations, when seeking to determine the military conditions, let them be made the basis of a comparison in this wise. Which of the two sovereigns is imbued with the moral law? Which of the two generals has the most ability? With whom lie the advantages derived from heaven and earth? On which side is discipline most rigorously enforced? Which army is stronger? On which side are officers and men more highly trained? In which army is there the greater constancy both in reward and punishment? By means of these seven considerations, I can forecast victory or defeat. The general that hearkens to my counsel and acts upon it will conquer. Let such a one be retained in command. The general that hearkens not to my counsel, nor acts upon it, will suffer defeat. 
let such a one be dismissed. While heeding the profit of my counsel, avail yourself also of any helpful circumstances over and beyond the ordinary rules. According as circumstances are favorable, one should modify one's plans. All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. Hold out baits to entice the enemy. Feign disorder and crush him. If he is secure at all points, be prepared for him. If he is in superior strength, evade him. If your opponent is of choleric temper, seek to irritate him. Pretend to be weak, that he may grow arrogant. If he is taking his ease, give him no rest. If his forces are united, separate them. Attack him where he is unprepared. Appear where you are not expected. These military devices, leading to victory, must not be divulged beforehand. Now the general who wins a battle makes many calculations in his temple before the battle is fought. The general who loses a battle makes but few calculations beforehand. Thus do many calculations lead to victory, and few calculations to defeat. How much more? No calculation at all. It is by attention to this point that I can foresee who is likely to win or lose. And thus, this bonus episode has come to an end. Thanks for listening. I hope that hearing from these sources directly helps enhance your understanding of the culture of ancient China. Thank you.